Well, good morning once again. I'm Zach, one of the pastors here at Grace, and we're glad that you're uh, tuning in this morning um, to watch our service. We're uh, looking forward to one day being together again. You know, one time I had something very interesting happen to me. I was driving uh, just down the road one day, and I saw a car accident. I looked out of my passenger window, and I saw people gather uh, on the side of the road. And then all of a sudden, I noticed that a car was flipped upside down. I quickly did a U-turn and uh, got back to the scene and went over there to see if there was anything that I could do to help. There was a woman that was there, but we couldn't see her face. The airbag had deployed, and uh, we tried breaking the rear windows, but there was no way that we could do it. Nothing would happen. There was nothing that we could do. We had no way of knowing whether or not she was okay. Finally, police arrived. And even he could not break the window that was there, and eventually paramedics and The firefighters came with the jaws of life, and that was the only way they could remove her from that vehicle. I have no idea what happened to that woman. I don't know whether she survived or whether she died tragically. But I remember that moment. I remember the the helplessness, the powerlessness that I felt right then. Can you think of a time in your life where you felt completely powerless? Have you ever felt totally helpless without any course of action? Maybe it was when the doctor finally said, there's nothing else we can do. Maybe it was when you were called into your boss's office and told that that day would be your last day. Maybe you felt powerless and overcome with emotion and fear. Your heart began to race. Your uh, your face began to break out in a cold sweat. You were powerless. Physical, financial, emotional, or mental powerlessness overwhelms us. Another time I can remember was when Sarah, my wife, endured an ectopic pregnancy. We were told that morning how serious the situation could be. I held it together pretty good until I was alone in a surgical waiting room. And there, the helplessness of the situation, my powerlessness without anything to do, overwhelmed me. We're in a collective powerless situation right now. It's as if someone unplugged the generator that keeps the world spinning. We've lost our sense of control. One person even admitted to me recently when she felt the, uh, the, her control being taken away from her that that was the moment that overwhelmed her. What are we to do? We're told where we can go, where we can't go, how many people can gather, when we can't, we have to stay inside. We've lost total control. But if we're honest, we've never really had complete and total freedom. It's just easier to recognize now. But can you feel that things just aren't as they should be? Can you feel that uh, that we wish we could turn it around, but there's really not much that we can do? We are essentially powerless in this situation. So how do we live? What do we do? do we, uh, when we're in powerlessness, how do we respond? Do we respond like the spring breakers in Miami and say, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow someone else might die? Do we live like the toilet paper and hand sanitizer hoarders and prepare for Armageddon? In all seriousness, we may even look to God and wonder, what on earth is going on here? Maybe you've asked that question before. 
God, if you're good, if you're in control, and if you're powerful, then why do you let this go on? I've asked that question. God, if you're in control, if you're powerful, then why don't you change my circumstances? How could God, who is supposed to be completely powerful, seem so utterly powerless in my circumstances? Well, friends, today in our passage, we find that the one who seems so utterly powerless is, in fact, powerful. Last week, and as we began our series called Paradox, Ironies of the Cross, we're walking through these final sections in Matthew 27. The gospel writer Matthew uses the literary tool of irony to communicate about the identity and the mission of Jesus. Pastor Mike showed us last week from Matthew 27 that the one they mocked as king is truly king. Well, the king is nothing without his power. A figurehead, a national symbol, maybe, but a true king is one with power and control. And today, in Matthew 27, we find that the one who seems so utterly powerless is, in fact, powerful. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. I'll be reading from verses 32 through 40. Matthew 27, 32 40. And they came out, and as they went out, they, went, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is God's Word. We'll move through this passage in three phases. First, we'll see a, a portrait of powerlessness. Secondly, we'll find ironic insults. And finally, we'll find our power in powerlessness. But first, a portrait of powerlessness. Earlier in chapter 27, Matthew describes the physical treatment that Jesus endured at the hands of the Roman soldiers. They stripped him, mocked him in, with a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and forced it sharply onto his forehead. Then they struck him and spit on him. But this was just the beginning. The next seven verses make a crown of thorns seem like merely ripping off a band-aid. In verse 32, we see that Jesus is so weak from the beating they gave him that he can't even carry his own cross. Typically, those to condemn to die by crucifixion would be given the, the cross beam, the horizontal beam, to carry over their shoulder to the place where an upright beam would already be fixed in the ground, either an upright beam or a, the stump of a tree. But Jesus is so badly beaten that it seems impossible for him to carry his own cross. So the Roman soldiers force a, a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry it for him. 
The Gospel of Mark tells us that this man, Simon, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, that might seem completely unimportant, but Tim Keller has mentioned that Mark, the Gospel writer, includes this in his Gospel to indicate the reality of that event. What Mark is saying is that if you really want to know what happened, I'm including it here, but if you want to check, check my sources, Alexander and Rufus's dad, he carried that cross. Simon carried that cross for Jesus the entire way out of the city. Eventually, they arrived at the place of crucifixion. Verse 34 tells us that they offered him wine mixed with gall to drink. Many have suggested that this was some sort of narcotic to ease the pain. And that Jesus refuses this simply because he wants to be totally aware. He wants his senses fully alert as he endures this suffering. That is an option. Another option, and potentially more likely, is that the soldiers basically offered him a bitter cocktail of torment. It's almost like they intentionally confused the sugar and the salt. Maybe they gave it to him, suggesting that this sweet wine would quench his thirst. Except when Jesus tasted it, it was so bitter that all he could do was spit it out. Imagine his mouth so dry in that moment. He had been beaten for hours. Maybe he didn't have a drink the entire night. Finally, something to quench his thirst, and it was simply something that a cafeteria bully would give his prey. These soldiers are outdoing one another in slander and torture. And this drink is just another way of tormenting Jesus. Then in verse 35, the physical suffering's at its peak. They turn it up a notch. They crucified him. Pastor Mike gave some of this description last week. Crucifixion was awful. It was horrific. The person would be stripped totally naked. Then his hands would be nailed to the crossbeam. His feet would be nailed to the upright beam. Don Carson says, you hung there not only in pain, but in shame. In crucifixion, you were fixed there until you finally suffocated. With every gasp of breath from your body, you would be painfully aware that you were fastened to a piece of wood. You know, we talk so glibly sometimes about crosses, as if it's a piece of art or jewelry to wear around our neck. We speak of small sufferings today as if everyone has their crosses to bear, but, but we, we misunderstand this completely. Carson, Carson uh, summarizes this well. He says, to joke in the, of a cross in the first century would be the equivalent of us joking about the crematorium at Auschwitz. The cross was terrible. It was brutal. It was ugly. Well, after this, the soldiers divided up his garments, and then they just sat and watched. Believe it or not, it was hypothetically possible to survive crucifixion. Rare, but possible. It had happened. If the soldiers had left in time, then the condemned friends could come alongside and get him down off the cross, and that poor soul might even survive. But not this time. No, the Roman soldiers were ordered to watch this one. And if they finally got bored, they'd simply break his legs and let him suffocate there until he finally died. Finally, to make the picture all the more pathetic, they hang a sign there that says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And to keep him company, they place a robber on each side of him, crucified to a similar cross. This is the king. 
This is the king nailed to a cross, beaten, gasping for air. He's not with royals in a palace, but with thieves in a gallows. Where's his power? Where's his strength? It's nowhere. See, the portrait couldn't be darker. It couldn't be weaker. This so-called king was beaten to a pulp. He couldn't carry his own cross. He was now nailed to it, suffocating to death. Jesus is physically powerless. Just when we thought it couldn't get any worse, it ramps up. Now the insults begin. And it's in these insults that we see the irony that Matthew desires that we see. We see these ironic insults. Verse 39, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Some of us know far too well the pain of emotional abuse. You know the shame and how deep words truly can cut. As these people passed by, they didn't look away because of the horror of the scene. No, they looked right at Jesus and they accused him and they mocked him and they made fun of him. And they hurled insults at him. And it's in these insults where we see irony. We'll deal with just one of those insults today. That's found in the first half of verse 40. They said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. See, an accusation about destroying the temple was a big deal. In Matthew 26, just a chapter earlier, during Jesus' trial before the Jewish leaders, amidst the host of false witnesses, two witnesses finally come forward and they say, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, at the trial, Jesus remained silent. He was calm. He didn't respond right away. Because, why? This, this claim's absurd, right? Who could destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days? See, for the Jewish people, the, the, the temple was the centerpiece of their life. The temple went through several phases in the history of Israel. First, the tabernacle in the wilderness, merely a glorified tent, preceded it. Then Solomon built a physical structure in Jerusalem during his kingdom. And then eventually as they went into exile, the temple was destroyed and they rebuilt a much smaller version. But then Herod the Great built a massive and beautiful temple that made Solomon's temple look like nothing in comparison. You can see this picture here. The temple mount is massive. It's essentially the equivalent of 35 football fields. The temple was in view from virtually every nook and cranny in Jerusalem. Smoke from the sacrifices constantly made their way into the heavens. People were continuously making their way in and out, especially during this time of Passover. It would have been packed. No social distancing edict from Caesar at this moment. For most of the Jewish people, the temple was considered the very dwelling place of God. And through the sacrificial system, this was the place where God would meet his people. Carson summarizes this. He says, under terms of the old covenant, the temple was the great meeting place between a holy God and a sinful people. Sacrifices had to be made to atone for sin. And the temple was a constant reminder for the Jewish people that it was possible to relate with God, but only through sacrifice. To tear down the temple for the Jewish people would be essentially to tear down their identity. And not only was this a big deal for the Jews, it was actually against Roman law to desecrate a temple, any temple. 
See, the Romans appreciated religious pluralism. They were okay with you having your private religion so long as no one messed with Caesar. So this could have been an accusation to see Rome kill Jesus. Is that what's going on? Is it a false claim? Or is there something more? We find our answer in John chapter 2. John records Jesus early in his ministry visiting the temple in Jerusalem. And he sees people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons for the sacrifice. He's disgusted by what he sees and what they've turned this place into. So he drives them all out of the temple. And then the Jews come to him and they say in John 2 verse 18, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews looked at him. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? So Jesus did talk about the destruction of the temple and the construction of a new one. So what's going on? Well, friends, here's the irony. This is where we find that the one who seems so totally powerless is truly powerful. What Jesus knows is that in his suffering on the cross, he is tearing down that magnificent temple in the background. In his resurrection, he is constructing a new and perfect and glorious temple. See, Jesus' sufferings are not merely a physical thing going on. He's not merely taking the physical beating that you and I deserve. But he's taking on the full wrath of God against sin. And the temple was the great meeting place between God and man because it was the only way that sin could be dealt with. But all those years of sacrifice, all those years of temple worship, all those days of atonement were now coming to an end because the great meeting place between God and man was no longer going to be a place. It was going to be a person. John summarizes this well in verse 21 of chapter 2. He was speaking about the temple of his body. See, it would be wrong to think that Jesus had lost control of the situation. He may seem totally powerless, but he is truly powerful. John 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. The American classic movie, The Godfather, there's a discussion about power. And they, they talk about it. This mob family discusses who holds the strings. Who holds the strings was their way of saying who has the power. And for them, through intimidation, abuse, even murder, they made others out to be their puppets. See, in this scene, the Jewish leaders, Pilate and the Roman soldiers, all think that Jesus is their puppet. They've beat him, they nailed him to a cross, they've mocked him. But the irony, brothers and sisters, is that in this scene, Jesus is the one who's truly powerful. He's the one who holds the strings because he lays his life down. No one takes it from him. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Don Carson clarifies, it is in Jesus' death in his destruction, and in his resurrection three days later, that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God, becoming the temple, the supreme meeting place between God and sinners. 
See, with every lash of the whip on his back, Jesus was tearing down the temple and building a new one. With every swing of the hammer on the nails in his hands, Jesus was taking a wrecking ball to that temple and constructing a new one. With every gasp for just one breath of air, Jesus was hurling hurricane force winds at that temple and raising a new one. Jesus was no puppet in the hands of the men who crucified him. He was the puppet master orchestrating the greatest rescue mission of all time. He's satisfying the wrath of God for sinners. The one who seems utterly powerless is totally powerful. King Jesus on the cross is bloody and beaten, but he is a more magnificent temple than any wonder of the world. Jesus wasn't surprised by his circumstances. This was planned long ago. It was his mission to get there, to die on behalf of sinners, to satisfy God's right wrath against us. That insult, tear down the temple and raise it in three days, is exactly what Jesus was doing. Changing the great meeting place from a place to a person. So what do we do with this? How do we respond? How does this change our view of who Jesus is and what does it mean to follow him? Well, this is where we find our power and powerlessness. Our power and powerlessness. You might be watching today and wonder what to do with this. Well, there's two kinds of reflections that I want to make today. The first is for those of you who don't think you need Christianity. Maybe you're skeptical about Christianity and you think, I just don't need that stuff. I don't need it. If you're not a believer and you're, you're watching this today, I'm really glad that you've tuned in. Maybe, uh, maybe a, a friend sent you this link. Maybe you're just bored on a Sunday and you're just checking this out. I'm really thankful that you're, that you're watching this. But this might be you. You might be thinking, I don't need Christianity. Christianity is for the weak old people who are dying and they just need someone to hold their hand on their deathbed. I, I, I can control my own destiny. I control my own power. I've got it made. I make enough money. I'm healthy enough. I'm fine. Well, friend, the end of March, in the year of our Lord, 2020, how's that working for you? Do you sense that you're losing control? Do you feel the world caving in on you at all? Who holds the strings of your life? Do you think you do? See, right now, we're in a strange season of coming to grips with something that's always been true. We're really not in complete control of our destiny. We need rescued. We need something to remove us from the muck. No government bailout can help us here. And see, the story of the Bible is that God created a perfect and beautiful and wonderful world. Everything was great. He created us, mankind, in his image, to be his image bearers, to, to be with him, to know him, to love him. But we sinned. And in our rebellion, in our sin, that changed the course of everything. It meant the world is broken. It means that we are broken. It means that we don't function as we should. It means the world doesn't function as it should either. 
It means that we deserve to be punished for eternity. But when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go to the cross primarily as an example, but he went to the cross primarily as a substitute for the sin and punishment that you and I deserve. And upon his resurrection, he promises a hope for a future, restoration and new life. See, you're right that Christianity is for the weak. For us to truly embrace the teaching of Jesus and salvation is to trust in him by faith alone. It requires a rejection of self-trust and self-salvation. It requires that we embrace weakness and confess that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves and that God alone has the power. For he tells us in Romans 1, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that Christ is the power and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh friends, there is great power in God. Becoming a Christian is summarized in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Christianity is for the weak. And through placing our trust in Jesus alone, we admit that we are too weak to save ourselves, but that Jesus is a strong and sure foundation who can save us. If you're wondering about that message today, I would encourage you to talk to a friend. Talk to someone you know is a believer, you trust in Christ. Ask them what this can look like for you. And I plead with you to turn to Christ for salvation. Jesus is the true and perfect temple where we meet God. The second reflection is for those of you who may misunderstand Christianity. Maybe you're skeptical about the power of God. You see those wagging their heads and insulting Jesus, and they're essentially saying, if if you are who you say you are, if you really have power, then come off the cross. Maybe you've asked a similar question. Again, I know I have. We ask it like this, though. We say, God, if you're really so good, then why haven't you changed my circumstances? How could a good God allow such terrible things to take place in the world? How could a a good God take my loved one? Why wouldn't he heal? Why wouldn't he restore? Why wouldn't he answer my prayers? And we conclude, if God allows evil and suffering, and since he didn't change my circumstances, he cannot be good, and he certainly cannot be powerful. Maybe you thought following Jesus was supposed to be easy. A life of ease, a life of comfort, a life of freedom. Good health, prosperity, sprinkle a little Jesus on my life and everything will be all right. But maybe your experience has been anything but that. Well, first let me say that there's no easy answers to some of those important questions that you might be asking. I'll be honest and say that my own life experience has taught me that there's a lot of mystery and I have very limited knowledge on why God does certain things. Those walking by the cross, though, were essentially saying that. If 
you truly are God, then prove it. Come down from the cross. Well, Jesus could have taken himself off the cross. It was possible. He certainly had the power. Remember, though, that this is the Jesus who calmed the storm by the authority of his own word. This is the man who gave sight to the blind. This is the one who fed 5,000 people. This is the one who healed of disease, who made the lame leap, who raised dead people to life. He was totally powerful, so he could have come off the cross. But had he removed himself from suffering, he could not have saved his people. In his power, he put suffering on himself. In his power, he was broken. In his power, he was beaten. In his power, he could have called a legion of angels at any moment to save him, but he didn't. He took it. See, if Jesus would have lived, then we would still be dead in our sins. If he didn't suffer, then we could never be healed. If he didn't die, then we could never truly live. He seemed totally powerless, yet he was never more in control. And in his power, he died for you and for me. Friends, I don't know why God does and doesn't do certain things. But I, knew, I do know that God is sovereign. I do know that God is powerful. I know this, that there's purpose in suffering. Because Jesus himself endured suffering when he could have changed his own circumstances. One of the unique teachings of Christianity is that God suffered. God suffered in Jesus. He was a willing punishment for sin. He was a willing substitute. He took punishment he didn't deserve. If anyone could have asked the question, why do good people suffer? It was Jesus. Yet he did it. He did it and it changed everything. So brother and sister... If you're struggling with the why, let me encourage you to simply trust Christ and boast in your weakness. We can boast, but not in ourselves, but in God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, if I must boast, I boast of the things that show my weakness. And we can rejoice in those weaknesses because they reveal the power of God. Our suffering even proves his care. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10, Paul writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because he's strong in God. Friends, these messages were planned months ago. But has there ever been a, a time in your life when you needed to know that there truly is a king on the throne and that king has complete and total power? Jesus is reigning. He's powerful. Let's not waste this time in our lives. It would be a waste if we did not look to embrace the power and grace of God in our affliction. We would waste this time if we did not trust that he is totally in control. We would waste this if we did not seek 
to boast in our weaknesses so that the power of God can be made known. Whatever your suffering, whatever your concern, whatever your powerlessness, trust in the powerful one. In your powerlessness, trust in the powerful one. So how's that for irony? The one who seems so utterly powerless is truly powerful. And when we lose ourselves in him, we truly find ourselves. See, to every one of you who's part of Grace Polaris Church, I wish I could see you face to face. I wish I could see every person who's, who's been weary these last few months, these last few weeks. I wish I could see every family struggle to keep their kids around. I wish I could see every, every person who hobbles, wheels, or, or walks in here with a limp. I wish I could see every single one of you who, who feels alone, feels tempted to despair, who feels tempted to doubt, who wonders if 2020 might be the last year you even live. To every single one of you who knows and feels and senses that something is wrong and you feel your powerlessness, trust in Christ. Through his cross and resurrection, he has displayed and possesses more power than all the generators in the world. Friends, it may seem that, that death and sickness and disease are winning and suffering decay is too much part of our experience, but that would not be true because the cross proves that God wins. The cross proves God's salvation and the cross proves God's power. And in our powerlessness, friends, we can trust in the one who is powerful. Let me pray. Jesus, we come to you now and we ask, Lord, that you would show yourself faithful To all those who, who mourn, who sense their helplessness now, Lord, we pray that you would be a, a strong and steady comfort. Lord, for, for those where you've used these recent weeks to reveal how in lack of control we truly have, Lord, we pray that you would show up to them. We ask that you would clearly give us eyes to see a way to embrace our suffering in a way that honors you, to, to boast on our weakness because we know that you are powerful. And we pray, Lord, that you would be honored no matter the circumstances because you've proved it on the cross because you are totally powerful. And if you are powerful to save us from sin, you are powerful to keep us in your hand. Give us that hope. Give us that assurance. Give us that trust this day. In Jesus' name, amen.